Hallelujah. Father, for every believer in this room, we are here because the light of Jesus Christ by His Spirit and His Word broke through the darkness of our soul, shined the light of His revelation in spite of our sin, awakened us from our death and stupor, resurrected us spiritually unto newness of life. And now, by His use of these means, the Spirit opens our eyes to see the glories of redemption, not just our sin, but our Savior, who died in our place, the perfect Lamb of God, the shepherd, the great shepherd of all his sheep, who calls them out from the lost condition of their heart and soul unto newness of life, a new creation in him and him alone. This morning, as we contemplate your scriptures in this season, as we contemplate the work of the incarnation and redemption, I pray that that light would shine all the brighter in our hearts, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the call and might rejoice with the other saints, Lord, gathered in our families here today in the family of God and those who come into the kingdom as we continue to testify to the truth, to the praise of Jesus Christ, that a throng would be gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue worthy of our great Savior to praise Him forever without end. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. The great second person of the Trinity, God Himself who took on flesh, was born of a virgin to be sacrificed for our sins, defeated death in the grave in our sin and his resurrection, now rules until all his enemies are under his seat and all his people are called home. And that great day we yet wait for, the advent of his return. Thank you, Jesus, for these truths. Write them deeper on the tables of our heart as we open your scriptures, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. What a great joy, what a gift and a privilege it is to gather in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and to open up the precious gift of his scriptures this Christmas Eve morning. Join me as you're able in doing so by turning to Genesis 49. We've been studying Genesis 49 in our Genesis series. This morning we'll read a passage from it. We'll focus particularly on one verse. And from that verse, we will draw connections, I trust, to the Incarnation and to Christmas in keeping with the season, as well as our Old Testament study. It's my goal in preaching this morning. As my aim is to connect the dots between Jacob's dying song in Genesis 49 and his prophecy and proclamation over Joseph and Christmas. Connect the dots between Jacob's last words and Christmas. We've studied last week this term lament in context of Psalm 123. A sad song, the basic definition of lament. We have a deeper definition I'll remind you of as well. But I want you to note that in this song, there's a lament tone as well, as Jacob awaits for his great salvation. With that introduction and your hearts open and in reverence for the word of God, would you stand as you're able? Let us listen to the word of God in our hearing today as it comes to us from Genesis 49. We'll read 22 through 26. And then we'll close with verse 18. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed to you this day. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. And there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. 
Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Verse 18, Jacob cries, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week, as I mentioned, in Psalm 123, verse 1, the author lifts up his eyes to the one who is enthroned upon the heavens. He goes on explaining that as the eyes of the servant look to their masters, and the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so his eyes look to the Lord his God. He was looking for something. Jacob was looking for something. The shepherds on the first Christmas Eve were waiting for something. They all were waiting for, <clears throat> summarized in this phrase, the salvation of the Lord, which is the theme of Jacob's dying song. Following the theme of last week's sermon, Shepherd's Lament, from Psalm 123, so we imagine those words on the lips of a lonely shepherd on the fields outside Bethlehem, with his eyes lifted to the heavens on the night when they broke open with the knowledge by the angel messengers that Christ himself was born unto them in a manger in Bethlehem, we trace this yearning for salvation language back further still, further all the way to the patriarchal era of covenant history. We find this language of lament, this cry for salvation, this hope for, future, uh, uh, for the future Messiah. It's central to the song that Jacob prays over his children as he dies. We have a re, I have a review of, definition, of the definition of lament that we've been working with, a working definition of lament. When the longing of our souls joins the groaning of all creation in anguish and faith, that upon the coming day of the Lord, redemption will be complete. One more time, what is lament? What is this song of earnest, sad, yet hopeful yearning? that we hear in these messages through the pages of Scripture, Psalm 123, the book of Lamentations, the prophets, so much of the Old Testament, Genesis 49. It is the longing of the souls of the authors of Scripture, joining the groaning of all creation, Romans 8, 22-23, in anguish and faith that upon the coming day of the Lord, redemption will be complete. The shape, of, the shape of Jacob's dying song focuses on this phrase in verse 18. This standalone confession in the middle of his blessings over his sons is simply this. I wait for salvation, O Lord. This is Jacob's lament. Before and after this lament for Avon, <clears throat> blessings are proclaimed in particular over two of his sons of note in the prophetic context they are significant sons represented by Judah, who we studied before. He will figure prominently in, his, in Israel's future hope, verses 8 through 12. And today, as we read, over Joseph, which includes an extended oracle featuring Joseph's legacy as well, verses 22 and 26. This is the shape of Jacob's song. Prophetic oracle, the lament Focus, I wait for your salvation, and then prophetic oracle over second significant son. It is in this second extended prophecy that we read this morning that Jacob introduces three names, three names that are steeped in messianic in, in anticipation. And this would be the focus 
of the jumping off point of our message today in verse 24, which reads again, yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile. By who? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, there is the shepherd and the stone of Israel. Mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. These are three messianic names that anticipates an answer to Jacob's prayer. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Who is this? As we confirm and confess, saints, this side of the incarnation. This is the same Savior pictured in Judah's legacy. These three names join those three pictures that were proclaimed over Judah of one like a lion, a lion's cub, one of whom the scepter will never depart from his hands, and one whose mode of transportation is a donkey's colt. These three pictures fulfilled by Jesus, just as these three announcements of the character of the Messiah, Mighty One, Shepherd, and Stone are fulfilled in Christ. In Jacob's dying song, we find that he is waiting. He is waiting for what? The advent of Christ our Lord. And in his dying song, we discover a source of hope strong enough, to, strong enough for him and for the faithful to wait 1,740 years approximately until these words come true. What is Jacob waiting for? He, like all the saints that preceded Jesus Christ, like all the faithful who believed the word of the prophets, was waiting for three things, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, and the stone of Israel. Here's a heading for you. As we tie the waiting of Jacob, his lament, the orientation of his heart, his hopeful confession and prophecy to Christmas, according to Genesis 49, 24, who were the people of God waiting for on the very first Christmas Eve? I've given you my three points already. Number one, they were waiting for the mighty one of Jacob. And then two, the shepherd. And number three, the stone of Israel. So let us consider firstly the mighty one of Jacob. Turn with me to Luke chapter one, if you would. And let us connect the dots once again between Jacob's song and Christmas. <clears throat> As you're turning there, a note of context. The shape of Judah's, or Judah's hope and legacy pictured in the beginning of, or in the first stanza of the psalm, if you will, and then bracketed by Joseph's shape or uh, legacy in the second portion of Jacob's song, points the focus, uh, the technical term in, is chiastic structure, to the center, to the theme, to the hinge, and what I suggest is the main hope, the ringing, uh, the ringing out of Jacob's song, the reprise and the chorus, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. With this in mind, we look to the scriptures to give us answer to the question, when did Jacob's hope come true? Well, for those who are looking for the mighty one of Israel, things began, the windows of revelation began to open up uh, preceding the first Christmas day as the angel of God's messenger, angels, God's messengers, were sent to particular people of interest in the events that would soon unfold to proclaim what was about to happen. Of course, one of these angels is the angel Gabriel, and he visits Mary in Luke chapter 1. Notice in verse 26, as we pick up on the story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. To who? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Uh, children, that virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, 
This is the angel speaking. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Kids, how did Mary respond to the angel? She felt something. She was very? That's correct. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31 through 33. Note what the, what the uh, angel announces to the mother of Jesus. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, kids, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father Jacob, uh, David, excuse me, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Who is Mary waiting for? Who are Zechariah and Elizabeth waiting for? Anna, Simeon, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men on that very first Christmas Eve. Well, according to the word of Jacob prophesied ages past, some 1,700 years ago, they were waiting for the mighty one of Jacob. So it is it, is it any wonder that the language of the angel includes terms, descriptions of the mighty one of Jacob, Jesus. Who will he be? He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. You will call his name Jesus. You will bear a son. He will be an infant. He will be meek and mild. He will be lowly in a manger. It will be a silent light night, and we could, in some sense, perhaps, maybe we could sing away in a manger, but don't let these tender meditations obscure the fact that when the announcement came that Jesus was to be born, it wasn't a cuddly Hallmark card version of hope for humanity in the future, but instead a trumpet blast from glory, from angels veiled with light, in the, attended by armies and hosts on the hills, in the skies, uh, over the hills outside Bethlehem, who proclaimed in a fearful and terrifying announcement that the mighty one of Jacob was to be born, Jesus, Lord, at his birth. Luke 1, 30-33. This is just one example of the power and the glory attending the uh, each angelic revelation of Jesus' soon-to-be birth. With each occasion, we find this pattern of fear in the text. Each occasion initially strikes terror in the hearts of those visited. Why? Because this is a weighty revelation of the power and the glory of God. This is a revelation of holiness that makes a sinner quake in his boots and shudder in his weakness and frailty and humanity. This is a fear and a terror that is only assuaged when the angel says, do not be afraid. And the servant hearing the message realizes that the coming of this great one will mean the salvation of Mary's own heart and from her sin. The salvation of the one who received the news, the redemption of those who welcome the Messiah. Then and only then will the revelation of the mighty one of Jacob move from one of terror to one of hope, one of fear to one of relief, one of a stunning display of God's mighty power, which causes us to shudder to one of thank you, Lord Jesus, and worship and overwhelming joy. The angels knew that the one to come was not just a gentle, meek and lowly, quiet, cuddly Savior in a manger, 
baby infant that's worshipped in the way the Hallmark cards are written. The angels knew that this was, though in small and unrecognizable to most, form, indeed lowly in a manger, nevertheless the mighty one of Jacob. Did Mary know this? Yes, she did. You guys know that famous song, Mary, Did You Know? Because <clears throat> sometimes you're on the radio, and it's kind of a muse about, you know, what might have been going through the mind <coughs> of the mother of Jesus. How much knowledge and revelation did she have of exactly the significance of Christmas and what was taking place in her very womb? Well, the Bible answers in part this question, what did Mary know? And as this chapter continues, one of the very first Christmas songs reveals her confession. This is that famous song called the Magnificat. As Mary sings this poetry to the Lord in verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Amen. What did Mary know? Mary knew that the child, the infant growing inside of her, was one conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was mighty. He was the mighty one of Jacob. So mighty, in fact, that his coming, his arrival, would spell the dethroning of every imposter, leader, and ruler. Every claim to might and power, which Mary and Joseph would soon come in contact with, one thinks of Herod, would be dethroned and an angel messenger would be sent to protect the child within her and the child soon to be born from the predations of the wicked and the self-exalted mighty king. And then one who bore his name later would die and his carcass would be eaten by worms on the day when he accepted the worship of the people. And when the worms ate the body of this king, the lowest of creatures taking dominion over this once exalted imposter, it became apparent to those with eyes to see that the mighty one of Jacob is declaring dominion over the kings of the earth. No Herod today and no Herod then will ever usurp the throne and the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the mighty one of Jacob. The angels knew it. Mary knew it. You hear it in their confessions. You hear it in their songs. Who else knew it? The wise men. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we pick up on their account. Young people remind us, how did the wise men find Jesus? They followed something. Do you remember what it was? That's correct. So these dignitaries from the East, these men of importance, these men of means, these men of influence, follow this celestial event to the place where Jesus resides. And as they do so, some things become clear. In verse 9, let me turn to the right book here. In verse 9, incidentally, they're in contact with the king of that time, Herod, whom we mentioned. And they're talking about their quest and this is what they say, verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. This is what's recorded of them. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts. And kids, do you remember the three gifts? Shout it out. That's good. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Mary recognized in her song that mercy belongs to those who fear the Almighty, that a judgment day would come for the unrepentant proud. She recognized that the, her mighty Savior would remember His covenant with Abraham's line. And the birth of Jesus fulfilled and the promises and prophecies of the patriarchs and all of the scriptures. She was a Jew. She had grown up with these things. There were men from afar, another nation, we surmise, however, that knew similarly what Mary knew and the angels as well. Who told them? The Holy Spirit. Through extraordinary means. These famous, no doubt in their own land, men of importance, bowed low, stooped low to worship a child. What did they know? What were they witnesses to? They were witnesses to a birth event worthy of a supernatural and signal event in the skies. The heavens were bowing. The stars were bowing to their creator. And thus they followed the star to point them to the one who is greater than the stars. And they found Jesus Christ. Secondly, they recognized, they were witness to a historical figure worthy of the worship of international dignitaries. This wasn't just Israel's king, this was their king. And they would travel to find him and would not rest until they had given him their allegiance and their gifts. Third, they recognized that this would-be child king was worthy of the most expensive of gifts delivered at great risk of life and great effort. Who knows, over land, perhaps sea, all the way until they found the place of his throne, the lap of his mother, Mary. And finally, they knew and witnessed to an ultimate authority, justifying defiance of earthly kings like Herod. And being warned in a dream, they defied Herod's authority, refused to acquiesce to his request, and they went home another way because they worshiped Jesus Christ over Herod even though they were men of importance and prominence. And let me hasten to add, not since the days of Solomon had men or people of importance from foreign, from foreign uh, nations come to worship and to behold the wisdom of what was taking place in Israel. But it was happening now because why? The mighty one of Jacob had come. The angels knew it, Mary knew it, and the wise men knew it. Do you know him? Last week, we talked about in Psalm 123 that that knowledge, as we read earlier as well, of the servant to master is one of close relationship. A maidservant looks to the hand of her master to know the will and the provision of the one who takes care of her by nonverbal communication. A relationship so close that just a glance or a gesture would communicate to them their will. It's a picture of this knowledge that is exchanged between the master and the servant. Then we related that last week to the calling of becoming so familiar 
and so knowledgeable of our master, how well do we know our master, that just a glance or a reminder or an occasion like the season would move us to do what? To worship him, to pray, to have our hearts filled with joy, to know what his will is for us, that we would bow the knee of our flesh, that we would bow the knee of our own will, and that we would look to the scriptures and seek to be obedient to our great king. That we would seek to be like the wise men, whatever gifts God has given us, to rejoice that he has granted to us something to offer to the service of our Savior. Do we know him? Do we know him not just as a cuddly sentiment, but as the mighty one of Jacob, whose arrival Mart struck fear in the hearts of those who, knew, who beheld him? Why? Because they were sinners and he was perfect and sinless. But then they moved on from fear to that relief their sins atoned for because this little one, born a child that day, would become soon enough the Lamb of God and be killed in their place and die for them. This is what the angels knew, what Mary knew, what the wise men knew, and I pray that you know it today. I pray that you know it this season as well. Look to the scriptures. Therein is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ recorded. Behold, all of these stories, these connections, dig deeply into the message of Christmas and the message of redemption that we see unfolding through the entire canon of the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. And as you do so, rejoice in what you discover and join with the confession and praise of the angels, Mary and the wise men, the mighty one of Jacob, rules and reigns yet today. And in the hearts of those who know him, they worship him as their master their Savior and Lord. Secondly, who were the people of God waiting for on that very first Christmas Eve? They were waiting for the mighty one of Jacob, but they were also waiting for the shepherd. Back in Genesis 49, that threefold confession that, uh, that Jacob gives in his prophecy over his second son of significance, Joseph, he says of Joseph that his bow will remain unmoved and his arms will be made agile by what? So what is the power that grants hope for the legacy and that empowers Joseph, has guided him through, and will be the, the guide and the uh, hope to guide the people of God far beyond this place? He is the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That first Christmas Eve, the people of God were waiting for the mighty one of Jacob, and they were also waiting for the shepherd. A bit of context for you. In Ezekiel 34, I put in a, a subpoint, battered shepherd syndrome. The people of Israel, you need to understand, had suffered from battered shepherd syndrome, if you will. The, it had been 400 years since the prophet of God had arisen. There had been a silence, uh, so to speak, from the last page of the Old Testament written to when Jesus Christ first broke onto the scene with the gospel uh, of, the, of Christmas and all that is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But during this time, there are many claims to authority. There were shepherds, so to speak, that promised to lead the people. But with what, the rise of one, uh, no sooner would he rise than he would fall. And no sooner would people rally, but then they would be defeated. And no sooner would there be hope that Israel would conquer her enemies and overthrow her oppressors than the next, you know, whether it be Persia or Babylon, uh, Cyrus the Great, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Rome, Greek, Empire, would stomp across their borders and declare dominion over their nation once again. 
And it's in this time where the shepherds and all their false promises kept coming and coming and coming that the prophets encouraged them by words that preceded these moments to beware and to look to the great shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, particularly in verses 15 and 16, we have this promise. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Goes on, 17, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink the clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? Must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? You see here, there is hope for a great shepherd to come. I myself will do it, says the Lord. But in the meantime, these false shepherds were making a mess of things. They were treading on the people. They were serving themselves. Behold, I will search for my sheep, the Lord had said, and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places that they had been scattered. On the day, on a day of clouds and thick darkness, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Who would this be? Would it be a Maccabean prince? Would it be the next zealot leader? Would it be a false prophet who arose to gather the people and declare uh, that there was hope in his administration? No, the people waited year after year after year. 400 years or so, suffering from this battered shepherd syndrome, waiting for the one great shepherd who had finally set things aright. These last words of divine inspiration would guide the faithful through the dark ages of the intertestamental period. The faithless shepherds were proactively and preemptively called out by the prophets, and they were distinguished from the great shepherd to come who would perfectly and eternally shepherd his people. You might study on your own time Ezekiel 34 back-to-back with John 10, which we'll mention in a moment. And as you study those two passages, you might evaluate your own shepherding call. You see, God has given us charge over certain things, I think especially men and fathers, husbands, in the hearing of this message. Are you a good shepherd? The only good shepherds are those who walk and live and lead according to the direction and the example of the great shepherd. The false shepherds who were scattering the sheep and destroying their resources, muddying their water and stamping out their grain, they were serving themselves. They were serving idols. They would just capitalize on the will of the people politically for a season only to let them down when they proved not to have the answers they had promised early on. But there is a great shepherd, and he is the standard. He is the one by whom all shepherds are to be measured. And he is the one who the faithful, when they waited for the great shepherd on that Christmas Eve, were not deceived. They were not deceived by the Herods. They were not deceived by the high priests or the religious leaders of that day or the Roman armies and their terrifying presence. No, they were waiting for a greater one still. And they judged the leadership that they were under by that standard, and they waited. They waited for who? The mighty one of Jacob and the shepherd to lead and guide them. Did he come? 
He certainly did. In Luke 2, in light of this context and background, is it not significant that among the first to receive the message of Jesus Christ born in a manger was in fact a group of shepherds? In verse 8, in the same region, there they were, out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with, once again, fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For this will be for the people, for unto you is born, for all people, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And you know the rest of the story. Suddenly there were with that angel, a multitude, a host, praising the Lord, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. A second Christmas carol is written. And with it, the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. Who is he? The mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd. A fitting first audience of the incarnation, given the redemptive appointment of the Messiah. Shepherds were visited <clears throat> with this, and the, uh, the shepherds would go from this place to visit the infant cradle of the great shepherd on this very first Christmas night. And the shepherd of shepherds' birth was witnessed and proclaimed by these, his first disciples. The shepherds go from this place and they proclaim so to speak, that the shepherd has been born. Isn't it fitting that the first wave of disciples that announced the incarnation event and the birth of the Savior and Messiah, the one prophesied of old, were themselves shepherds. The prophets continued to testify, even to people in authority. Again, in Matthew 2, religious leaders from the temple reach back to our to reference this, by the way, in our worship text today, prophecies of old to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And among them, there was this knowledge that the one to come would be the shepherd of the people of Israel. <clears throat> Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, that is Herod at this time, this is verse 4 of Matthew 2, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew it. They knew it at least in their scriptures, although as far as these guys knew, it wasn't in their hearts for many of them. Who was this king of the Jews? They had seen his star, and they had come to worship him. So the wise men had this sense. Herod, interested for other reasons, assembled the experts, the chief priests and the scribes. What can you tell me about this Christ to be born? And they tell him rightly from Micah chapter 5 where he was to be born and part of his calling or prophecies of what he would do. He will shepherd his people, Israel. The shepherd had come on that Christmas night. And he would set things in place. And he would eventually judge all false shepherds according to his standard. He would declare his authority in due course and in due time. He would announce himself, he would reveal himself as a shepherd in the course of his ministry. As the scriptures continue and the gospels unfold, it is fitting to recognize that in John chapter 10, it is no accident 
but is indeed Jesus Christ revealing of himself the fulfillment of Micah 5, that he is the great shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He goes on in verse 7, Jesus says again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers. He is the shepherd, he is the gatekeeper, he is the door. His sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. <clears throat> he was brought out for all his own. He goes before them, and his sheep follow him, and they know his voice. So on that first Christmas Eve, the people of God were waiting for the mighty one of Jacob and the shepherd of Israel. He was proclaimed by prophecy, and that prophecy was confirmed and fulfilled in the course of Jesus' ministry when he proclaimed of himself that he was indeed the great shepherd. This is the testimony of the prophets. It was a testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> and it culminated in this revelation that the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say in John 10, and then he goes on to fulfill in the course of his ministry. That is to say, the good shepherd would become a lamb. And in becoming a lamb and laying down his life, he would be the sufficient sacrifice to lead his people through the valley of the shadow of death into the eternity of still waters and green pastures. The shepherd of shepherds would become a sheep. And in his death on Calvary, that sheep lamb of God's sacrifice would be the very means to guide the people of God where no man, no false shepherd could ever take them, could ever dream or conceive of the ability to take them. Through the door of death, past the wrath of God do our sin, through the gates of glory into the eternal presence of the Almighty to fellowship and feast with Him in glorious communion and restored covenant forever. Why? Because the mighty one of Jacob had come and the shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Praise His holy name. Finally this morning, we welcome in Jesus Christ not just the mighty one of Jacob and the shepherd, but the stone of Israel. This picture of stone is one of foundation, assurance, security, and permanence. <clears throat> Castles are built upon stones. Strong foundations of buildings that endure are placed upon bedrock. This stone imagery is familiar to us, both in the architecture of our day and also the poetic language of Scripture. Stone refers often to the kingdom of God. And in the coming of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the foundation, the king of uh, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the authority, the permanence, the security of all his people had been established. The king was here and he was the stone of Israel. Again, in the book of Matthew, Jesus announced himself in part as the fulfillment of Jacob's song of old in chapter 21. He recognizes the prophets proclaiming <clears throat> Psalm 118, 22, that there was a stone. That stone would be the foundation for some, but for others, it would mean judgment. It would spell judgment. In Matthew 21, 42, <clears throat> we hear the words of Jesus. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, of course, speaking of himself, 
and to associate this language with this kingdom. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now listen to who was offended. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him as a prophet. Hey, wait, I thought we were the foundation of this society. We are the men of prominence and importance and the experts. We are the stones, priests, Pharisees, and other false kings and shepherds say. But Jesus says, no, I am the stone. The stone that the builders rejected, that the Pharisees refused to see, although they knew the scriptures and proclaimed as much in Matthew chapter 2, citing Micah chapter 5 and responding to Herod's question, where will this king be born? What will he do? They cite the scriptures, yet in their hearts they refuse to bow and be broken upon the stone and to give up their false claims of importance and authority and hope and salvation. Nevertheless, the stone of Israel had come. The chief cornerstone, though rejected by the builders, would be established and fitted, and other stones, living stones, would be fitted against him. Remember Gene's sermon recently, preaching to us of the great priesthood of the church in 1 Peter 2, 7 through 9. Peter, the apostle, quotes from Psalm 118, 22, recognizing, of course, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and declares the same. So he did in Acts chapter 4. And note the audiences of the apostles' testimony. Rulers, elders, scribes gathered in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. This is all in Acts 4. Precisely noted the audience of the apostles' proclamation. And this is why. <clears throat> because they all claim to be stones. They all presumed to be fixtures in the society. They were the ones of importance who would guide and guard and lead the people. And in the presence of all of these, the apostolic testimony of Peter and John, echoing what Jesus has already said, proclaims what Jesus revealed in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Of course, later they would try to kill him, would they not? <clears throat> stone versus stone, conflict. Jesus would look upon the stones of the temple, and he would proclaim, Matthew 23, 37 through 24, 2, that the traditions and the accomplishments of men represented in the stones of that edifice, uh, not one of them would be left upon another but rather their substance and fulfillment would remain. Not one of their stones that claimed identity and authority in the things of man or what they could accomplish or their own concepts of ideas distorted and twisting of Scripture would stand, but instead they would be destroyed. But there would be a stone who would stand forever. And he stands today, saints, and his name is Jesus Christ. Are you fitted to him? His enemies tried to bury him once and for all, tried to seal his influence behind his own tombstone. Jesus defied them and the grave, and what did he do? He broke the seal, representing the authority of those who put him in that place. He rolled the stone away. No stone would stand before him. He rose from the dead, 
conquering the grave, and eventually, 40 days later, ascended to his father to rule and reign forever. The triumph of the rejected stone. And so he is, saints, forever reigning until all his enemies have been subdued at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mary knew this. The angels knew this. The shepherds knew this. The wise men knew this. Do you know this today? If you do, let's join their testimony and the testimony of Scripture and join the chorus of believers who have told of his birth and have told of his death, his resurrection and ascension on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere, through the ages, and may the church continue to do so until the glorious return of the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd and the stone of Israel. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the reassurance of your scriptures, the rites and etches upon the tables of our hearts, the truth of who Jesus is. As we welcome him in our hearts, just as he was welcomed on the day when he was born, I pray that that news would be joined by our feet going on from this place to where you call us to serve and by our mouths proclaiming his message and truth and by our hands diligent to the task of growing the kingdom until he returns. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious truths. And I pray that they would be applied, and that they would be proclaimed through your people as a result of this message today insofar as your word has been accurately handled. Now, as we close our service today, worshiping you, may you be praised and enthroned upon the songs of your people to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Sovereign. In his name we pray. Amen.